This podcast was recorded at 2 p.m. on 22 June Jakarta time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Please enjoy the show. Welcome back to Reformasi Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton. And I am Kevin O'Rourke from Reformasi Weekly. Kevin, it's uh, battle stations here. COVID is spiking and it's it's all your fault. Well, not your fault, all of our fault, according to, to the Punjabi. <laughs> we're not following. We're not following orders. Yeah, yeah, we're we're naughty uh, little children who are uh, misbehaving and therefore have uh, spread the virus everywhere, despite all the best efforts of the elite to keep things under yeah. control. Yeah, yeah. If, if only we could be reasonable. Yeah. We're going to talk about COVID and uh, just what sort of um, options. Uh, the Widodo administration has, and we're going to talk about some um, polling that's come out that's uh, some pretty high quality and uh, listeners need to know about. We're also going to talk with Simon Flint, co-founder of the 1,000 Days Fund. Um, should be, we, haven't, we haven't spoken with him. That's coming up in about 50 minutes. He has, he's running a charity on, um, uh, to combat stunting, which is a massive problem here. When children are physically stunted, it curbs um, prospects for earning for health outcomes uh, later in life. And something uh, anywhere between 30 and 37 percent of Indonesian children are um, effectively malnourished to the point that they, they can't grow. The brains don't develop. Their bodies don't develop. Their lives don't develop. Um, so it is a worthy cause. I'm really, really looking forward to that chat with Simon. You, you yeah. know him well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we uh, go uh, yeah so far back that I don't care to remember how far back. And uh, his uh, foundation is uh, playing an important role now as an official uh, partner of uh, the government agency handling stunting now. Yeah. Okay. Should be a That's after the break. COVID. Um, the seven-day moving average has easily doubled since uh, this time last month. We're about 13,000 or so a day, bed occupancy rates are creeping up to the 80, 90% level. And that's a real concern because yeah. I get the feeling that uh, we're just getting started. Um, there's a little concern about the Delta variant um, and the, the spikes is not just, a, sorry, that, that, that doubling rate, that rate of doubling was in Jakarta, but it's a pretty rapid rate of growth across the country. As I said, a sort of battle station, red alert. Uh, that's that's actually not over-dramatizing it, is it? Yeah, not at all, no, because it uh, really is a big country. So you know, the, the scope has always been there for really uh, one of these sensational spikes that uh, have hit a lot of other countries around the world, um, which have spared Indonesia so far. Um, and now this is a real test of uh, whether health protocols and government response measures um, and uh, public discipline can restrain the transmissions and also whether Indonesia's very limited healthcare system can avoid uh, inundation and, and becoming overwhelmed. I, we, we need to address um, the holes where, where the country is with regards to vaccinations. Um, I got mine. You got yours. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, we're very much in the minority. Yeah, yeah. I was in the U.S. and I was able to get a uh, Pfizer vaccine there. Um, but um, 
Yeah, there's only uh, about 7% or so of the public which is uh, fully vaccinated by now nationwide. However, what's interesting is that uh, the, the current surge is really being driven by Jakarta. That's, the, that's definitely the epicenter this time around, unlike how it was in January, February. Uh, and meanwhile, Jakarta is also uh, by far the, uh, the place with the highest uh, vaccination rate. I mean, arguably Bali is up there too. It's a much smaller place, but uh, um, 30, 30% of the uh, population of Jakarta has received uh, one jab at least. So uh, it's kind of interesting to me that this uh, surge is happening here, uh, despite the, the vaccination record that uh, Jakarta has had so far. Maybe it has to do with the, the timing of the, the infections and the incubation periods and the, uh, you know, the, the having one jab versus two jabs. But um, I'm deeply suspicious that it's um, maybe the, the better healed um, the, the, the wealthier, the more plugged in people that maybe have, have more time, they're more yeah. likely to be vaccinated, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pattern that, uh, occurs uh, worldwide. And, uh, I think it's, uh, particularly accentuated here. The government did do a good job of covering the healthcare workers and frontline workers. And, and that's, that's an, important to, uh, to cover that link in the chain because otherwise, you know, the healthcare workers can easily transmit the virus to, uh, to other people. So that, those are factors that should uh, slow things down and perhaps uh, cap the, uh, the the worst outcomes. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, you know the the, the uh, daily cases have been creeping right up. Um, the past few days, it was twelve thousand, then twelve thousand five hundred, then thirteen thousand a day, then thirteen thousand five hundred, and um, uh, yesterday was uh, fourteen thousand five hundred cases identified. So. Um, the, uh, the emergency COVID hospital at the Athletes Dormitory, which has uh, space for 7,000 isolation patients and also um, you know, sick patients, is completely full now for the first time ever. And so now the authorities are using uh, sort of an annex, uh, an unoccupied low-income housing apartment complex, uh, which is a pretty rough uh facility and that that's now where uh asymptomatic isolation patients are going to go yeah it's not some place you you want to be uh visited there as part of a media familiar um we 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 at the beginning of this and i thought wow uh, i will do anything to stay out of here <laughs> um i mean it's not it's, it's not nasty but i mean it's it's quite institutional you don't want to be there any longer than you want to that's the um, that's the, the uh, wisma athlete yeah, yeah, it's um, it's several towers of sameness. Um, um, it's not great. So I could understand how you would not want to make your health conditions known unless you really have to. Yeah, yeah, that's a big factor, right? Yeah, underreporting and uh, disincentives uh, for disclosure. What do you make of the government's um, a response to? Well, sorry, I'll, I'll tackle that again. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's many different ways to, to um, drop a net around uh, a city. Do you go sort of neighborhood by neighborhood? Do you do the, the, the testing and tracing? Do you, do you drop a net over an entire town like a la Wuhan? Um, they're, they're taking a very micro approach here, aren't they? Yes, because uh, if there's ever a simple way to do something in Indonesia, it's always more complicated somehow. So uh, instead of sort of a straightforward kind of uh, designation of geographical areas, uh, 
Indonesia has a, an administrative system that actually has about seven different levels from the center to the province, district, uh, right down to, um, to to units that don't even have English translations. Yeah, I'm sort of uh, <laughs> struggling wow. to figure out how to explain these things. So uh, Jakarta province has got uh, six districts, 44 sub-districts, and about 260-something uh, uh what I call communities, the word is Kalurahan, and uh, a rural area is called a desa or a village. Mm. But um, these Kalurahan in Jakarta, because they're so densely populated, are, are really big units. So therefore, there's two other units underneath them. There's uh, uh, 2,700 Rukun Wilaya or Airway or RWs, and uh, about 30,000 Rukun Tatangas or RTs or RTs. And so the airway is kind of like a neighborhood or a housing complex. Yeah. And a, an RT would be kind of like in North America, like a cul-de-sac is what I sort of think of <laughs> from where I grew up. Um, it's just a, just a block or something like that. So what the government has been doing this year since uh, the last wave in February was uh, applying a, what they call PPKM micro, which focuses on designating individual RTs. Uh, as being either a red zone or orange or yellow or green. And, and just the, uh, the, those, those RTs, those, those are the smallest unit. That's a subset yeah. of, of the RWs, the airways. Yeah, yeah, they're tiny. Um, uh, so, yeah, and, and uh, it worked because the, since they did that, case levels steadily dropped, Um nationwide up until the uh, Edel Fitri, uh, Moodyk, and, and the wave we're seeing now. So the question now is whether that system is still appropriate, though, given the, that there is this uh, wave of the new variants that's spreading very rapidly. Are these uh, RT administrators, who I think are probably volunteers, uh, uh, really adequate for identifying cases, tracing them, and then reporting them efficiently and accurately? Yeah, so there's provincial legislators uh, from uh, PSI, the more reform-minded party, uh, calling for officials to uh, elevate the system to at least the RW level, if not the Kalurahan or community level, and sort of make red zone designations uh, based on, yeah. on that level rather than these uh, very micro levels. And it needs, needs to happen quick, though. Yeah. You mean the, the, the party Solidarity Indonesia? The- yeah, that's it. Right, right. Yeah, and um, so, but that, that's something that uh, yeah needs to happen quickly if it's going to happen. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, it, it, you know, conditions really could get out of hand. So, when the RTs were basically uh, running the quarantine, if there was to be any, how did that work in, in general? Was, was would an RT be just like sealed off? Um, yeah, in some cases, sure. Yeah, uh, basically, it worked really well when you have a good head of the RT, and, and really badly when you have a bad uh, head of the RT. So. Uh, they would just uh, keep tabs on everybody in, in their neighborhood and figure out who's sick and who's healthy. And then uh, for the sick ones, uh, where to isolate them or, or where to send them. And uh, and then also what sort of restrictions on movement uh, in, in that particular block uh, or neighborhood uh, should apply. So that's what's happening now. But to give you an example, basically the, the latest official data shows that uh, red zones in Jakarta uh, apply in about 82 RTs. And again, there's 30,000 RTs uh, throughout the province. So it's a drop in the bucket. And, and meanwhile, there's uh, you know, this, this uh, explosion of cases, uh, 5,500 cases a day uh, uh, two days ago. So 
um, it really calls into question whether the system is working at the moment. Uh, what is the the dialogue then? Is uh, is the Widodo administration feeling uh, pressure to you know, broad, broaden the, the quarantine measures? Yeah, definitely. So it's just it's yeah, mm-hmm. and it's the same old debate that uh, has prevailed for uh, a, over a year now. So um, the uh, provincial officials are saying that uh, they lack the authority based on the 2018 health quarantine law to. Uh, lock down or, or impose strict regional-based mobility restrictions uh, without central government approval uh, for the national capital. And so it comes down to Widodo uh, deciding whether or not to do that. And, um, and meanwhile, he has ministers who are really focused on economic activity and GDP growth. Uh, and Widodo himself cares a lot about uh, poverty alleviation and uh, impacts on uh, daily incomes for the poor. So uh, there's these, uh, you know, competing agendas at play, and typically the, the president has opted for avoiding lockdowns. And um, yeah, and again, to his credit, uh, with the exception of that wave in January, and February, things have worked out well for Indonesia thus far. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, it's actually been working out. Of, uh, he he has been loath to be too heavy-handed, and invited some criticism earlier on in the pandemic, but. In recent months, it, things were going, you know, rel- you know, relative to India, going fairly well. But now, when you look at this graph I have in front of me, it looks like the left-hand side of a very steep mountain. Mm, uh, yeah. we're, heading up, we're, we're heading up to uh, thirteen thousand or so a day, and uh, it was very close to a peak well, up until now. You know, for uh, you know, first prize, uh, the beautiful dining room suite. What is the <laughs> what? what has been the this, the, the the peak was there, was there a number that we should be uh, watching out for? Um, yeah, uh, the Indonesia set a record uh, yesterday with uh, fourteen thousand five hundred cases identified in one day. So that exceeds anything during the the, the January peak, just barely. But uh, uh, it's probably going to surge past that, um, presumably uh, in the days ahead. So yeah, we're in uncharted territory now. However, you know, uh, the United States is a country of roughly comparable size. It's, it's bigger than Indonesia in terms of population, but um, you know, not hugely so. And, of course, the U.S. Uh, saw daily cases of 300,000 a day or more uh, during its peak. Of course, the U.S. population is old and unhealthy, um, uh, unlike Indonesia's population. So that's, that's different, um, different lifestyles and uh, different politics. Uh, so it presumably wouldn't get that bad, but um, you know, it, it could climb far higher than it than it has so far. So thus the uh, pressure on the president that's mounting for a uh, emergency break, as they call it here, or a circuit breaker, something like what Malaysia did. You know, Malaysia is a very call, a small country, of course, and, and it saw cases of 9,000 a day last month, and they imposed a, a strict nationwide lockdown, and, and that actually... Uh, curbed uh, the transmissions and uh, then uh, brought about a, a reduction. Uh, I hear that, President Udo. Don't, don't listen. <laughs> don't, 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 please, please don't. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's going to jeopardize the yeah. The, there were there was a nice recovery happening in the second quarter. Um, yeah, but now the third quarter economically is uh, looking very questionable. Yeah, yeah, we we had exports. It's 
exports going from from strength to strength. Uh, we had expectations of a second quarter uh, being quite dazzling and only way is up. But those exports don't really count for much in this environment. It's it's all COVID, COVID, COVID. It, the, the degree to which you can control the pandemic is uh, determines your economic health. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the exports are primarily uh, commodity exports, and, and that's good for bringing incomes into uh, rural areas, especially outside of Java, and uh, helping uh, the, the balance of payments and uh, the currency. But what Indonesia really needs to uh, r- really resume growth is investment. And it's just uh, hard to actually implement uh, investment projects under these conditions right now. Uh, and then, um, you know, there's the specific sectors like airlines, like Garuda is really suffering. It's teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. Uh, the whole tourism sector was looking for Bali to recover in July. And now that's uh, again um, in question. You know, Bali is, is not showing an uptick in, in cases uh, at the moment, but you know, presumably this wave hitting Java is, is going to spill over uh, at some point. Um, and then finally, uh, there's the education sector as well. There was a, a lot of hopes for kids to finally get back to in-person learning uh, right about now. And, and now that's on hold, too. Yeah, a discussion for another day about the impact yeah. on, on, on education. Let's move on to new polling, um, the polar coaster. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> but um, new polling is... is, is um, as uh, the the top three extending their lead, Prabowo, uh, Ganjar, and uh, Anis Basguidan. Yeah, that's right. So this is the uh, first good in-person poll since March uh, by the same polling firm, uh, uh, coincidentally, Saiful Mujani. Yeah, what what makes this uh, a good quality poll is that it uses uh, face-to-face interviews rather than relying on contacting respondents via their handphones. Uh, as uh, most other polls have needed to do since the start of the pandemic. The problem with uh, using handphones is that only 70% of the uh, population owns uh, a handphone. So if that's your methodology, then you're uh, automatically missing out on uh, nearly a third of the population, which is uh, generally lower income, probably also uh, uh, lower educational attainment status. And uh, that really does skew the results because uh, looking at these uh, uh, telephone polls over the past year versus uh, a handful of uh, in-person polls, uh, there's a big difference. The main one being that Prabowo does much better in the in-person face-to-face polls, the more accurate polls, because it's capturing a lower income strata that um, is probably more familiar with him from the past elections uh, or maybe also genuinely uh, more inclined yep. to gravitate towards him. Maybe they just love the guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so this one shows that he's um, ahead uh, with uh, 34% in this uh, Cycle Mojani poll that took place during the fourth week of May nationwide. Uh, but what's also interesting is that the, the two other candidates who have uh, generally stood out in, in all past polling uh, Central Java Governor Ganjar Parnoa, whom we interviewed, uh, mm-hmm. and um, Jakarta Governor Anis Baswedan still stand out and they're close. So this one has Ganjar with 26% versus Prabowo's 34%. And then in third place, there's Anis uh, with uh, 24%. And then uh, 17% of respondents were undecided or did not know. And um, 
So that's uh, yeah. So this uh, this scenario here, this is this is a uh, three candidate scenario that uh, Saifam Mujani used, um, and uh, so it's so it's basically a close race. And what's also interesting is that when you take this into uh, context with name recognition, then it tells an interesting story because you know, Prabowo has uh, ran or tried to run in every election since 2004. So he's definitely a, a household name. Uh, his name recognition is 98%, according to this data from Saifal Mojani. They asked respondents uh, whether, you know, what names they recognize. Yeah, Anis Baswedan is also well-known. Uh, he has a high profile as uh, governor of the capital, so he's about 85% in terms of name recognition. Ganjar is a mere 57%. So, Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which kind of sounds bad, right? But it actually constitutes an opportunity because uh, he's already well within reach of uh, Prabowo's polling level, but he's doing that with uh, literally half as many people even aware of who he is. So therefore, as he becomes more well-known among the rest of the population, he has uh, ample potential to uh, jet past Prabowo. Yeah, he likes the the baggage that Anis Bazwedan might have that um, he collected during the 2017 gubernatorial election. Right, um, yeah. We just, just really, really don't like him. <laughs> well, yeah, Anis is a polarizing candidate, and that's uh, because he uh, took on the mantle of the Islamic candidate in that uh, highly polarizing uh, race in 2017 that divided the whole nation um, uh, when um, Ahok uh, Basuki Pranama lost um, amid the uh, blasphemy uh, conviction that, that happened. So Ganjar lacks that uh, polarizing kind of um, aspect. And then he arguably has a, a better record as well, uh, having governed Central Java for eight years, and uh, there's been quite a lot of improvements there during that time. Uh, Anis has uh, governed uh, Jakarta now for only three years, and you know, I think a lot of people would say that the city has regressed during that time. The uh, problem is people are just not so aware or tuned in to Central Java. So Ganjar is uh, enormously popular in his own province. And that is the third largest province. So it's an important breadbasket. But there's other places uh, that uh, he needs to branch out. He's got to be able to tell a story. And as um, Reformasi Dispatch uh, listeners will recall, um, there's, a, there's a certain chairwoman who is uh, not keen to do that. Um, so uh, watch this space. We're going to leave it there. Coming up, Simon Flint of A Thousand Days Fund. Okay, and uh, welcome back. I am here now with Simon Flint, co-founder of the 1000 Days Fund. Uh, Hi there, Simon. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Simon, so why don't we start off by talking about stunting, um, just in case uh, anybody confuses it with Hollywood uh, profession of (laughs) stuntmen or an urban export. Stunting is an affliction for children in Indonesia. Can you uh, give us a background on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, and it's an immensely 
serious affliction which um, affects about one in three kids in Indonesia. So strictly speaking, stunting is a, a measurement. Um, so if a child under the age of five years old is more than two standard deviations below the median of a, of a global population of children, um, then they're identified as stunted. Um, now, um, so whilst it's just a kind of a length definition, uh, that condition of being very short for your age um, is highly correlated with a lot of very, very negative things. So significant health problems, uh, kids uh, are roughly 10 times as likely to get sick if, if they're stunted. Um, many uh, child deaths in Indonesia are related to malnutrition, which is one of the causes of stunting. Um, probably about 45% of child deaths. So it's very serious um, from that perspective. Um, in addition, there's a significant uh, educational deficit that results from it. So um, your brain will be significantly smaller. Um, you're likely, as I said, to get sick. So you'll spend less time at school. So as a consequence, you're much less capable of uh, earning decent wages. So there's a very significant kind of GDP impact on Indonesia as well. Hmm. All right. And yeah, well, yeah, I want to get into the uh, the, the causes and the effects. Um, but uh, let's look at it internationally first. Uh, where does Indonesia stand? Uh, presumably very high with uh, nearly a one and third rate of stunting that, that ranks Indonesia high in this category relative to peers? Yes, it does. So the, the, the peer group um, of countries roughly the same kind of per capita GDP would be closer to 20 to 22%. Um, so Indonesia doesn't score particularly well in, in that respect. Um, but I think it's worth mentioning that things are improving. So the current government is extremely focused on dealing with the stunting issue. So initial figures do seem to show that they've made progress. So uh, the number, roughly speaking, when they came into power was around uh, 37% of, of Indonesian children being stunted, and that's fallen to about 30%. So that's a significant improvement. So the direction of travel is quite positive. Um, of course, we have the pandemic to account for too. Yeah, um, and what I would expect to see as a consequence of the pandemic is, uh, unfortunately, that stunting rates go up quite significantly. Um, so I don't have much data on this, but um, where Thousand Days Fund operates in West Mangarai, uh, in uh, East Nusa Tenggara, um, we've seen under two stunting rise very significantly uh, in data that we've received up to February of this year. And so there have been quite a significant year-over-year year increase in stunting rates for uh, kids under the age of two. And so, unfortunately, the pandemic, um, partly because obviously it's, it's depressing economic growth, but also mostly because it's preventing health posts, the posyandu, from remaining open, um, is causing quite a significant deterioration uh, in stunting statistics that I'm aware of. And I would imagine that this is a national problem. Yeah. Hmm. 
All right. Yeah. And the schools are uh, shutting down too uh, in a lot of cases and they're going remote. Um, does that have a direct impact too? Or is this something that's uh, typically uh, pertaining to, to, to children that are below um, kindergarten age? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so we're, we're very focused, as the name Thousand Days suggests, on a kid between the ages of, or I should say from conception until the age of two. So um, there's not a direct impact. What I would imagine happens, though, is as a consequence of kids not going into school physically, is that mothers with multiple children who are having to look after school-age kids who are not going to school anymore are probably less focused than we would like them to be, um, either on their own health if, if they're pregnant um, or on looking after these preschool-age kids who are vulnerable to stunting. So, yeah, definitely it, it would have an impact. No. Okay, and then so uh, let's talk about the the causes of stunting now, because I, I think there's been a lot of attention uh, in the past to, to uh, assorted issues that plague uh, so many Indonesians, whether it's uh, sicknesses or disease or sanitation uh, or poverty and, and education, and um, is stunting something that kind of uh, uh, results from a lot of different factors? Yeah, um, and I. I I think the reason um, or the, the fact that it results from so many different factors is one of the reasons why it's been very difficult to get to grips with, particularly in the context of Indonesia's highly regionalized form of government, uh, which has meant that a lot of health services have been devolved to the district or, or the village level. Um, and that certainly had a very significant impact. But in terms of the kind of generalized causes of stunting, um, poverty is, is exceptionally important, um, as you can imagine, because that uh, regulates one's access to nutritious food, uh, toilets and things like that. And I think a huge issue that we've encountered in the villages, and I think this is probably a universal problem, is, is also just a complete lack of comprehension of this as a problem. Um, among mothers, uh, among the population in general. So a lot of our work is focused on trying to improve the understanding of, of the causes of stunting and relatively simple remedies. And I'll just give you one example of a very simple remedy um, to prevent stunting at least, and, and that would be the use of exclusive breastfeeding uh, between mm -hmm. the ages of zero to six months. And um, that solves an awful lot of problems because obviously you're giving the child the best possible source of nutrition at that very early age. But you're also preventing them being exposed to unclean water sources. Oh. For, yeah. If you, if you introduce a child to formula, for example, at an early age, but obviously if you're mixing that formula with unclean water, the probability of that child getting an infection rises extremely sharply. So um, there are fairly simple things um, that even relatively impoverished women can do uh, to prevent your, their child from being stunted. That's interesting. Is there an attitude issue there with that too? Are there, are there people that think that they're doing the right thing by giving their children an expensive formula instead of breastfeeding? Oh God, that's such a great point. Yeah. It, it's, Having formula is is almost like a, a status symbol, right? It's mm. 
it's expensive, it looks fancy. Maybe you've seen an advert on TV which shows, you know, some phenomenally fit, strong and intelligent <laughs> person uh, that, that, that uh, uh, was fed formula. Um, so, yeah, we, we're fighting against um, that kind of propaganda, if you like, from the formula companies. Yeah, so yeah, so we're we're fighting propaganda uh, from uh, formula companies. Um, we're also fighting an innate bias uh, of people who assume that something they've seen on television, something that's packaged nicely, is superior to what you can provide from your own body, and, and this is obviously entirely false. Yeah. Um, so, what we typically found when we entered a village is that. Roughly 30%, maybe a little more, of mothers will report that they exclusively breastfeed uh, their kids below six months. And we're able to increase that for one program where we did a World Bank-funded study of the program. We found we could improve, improve that rate to close to 60%. Um, and these are mothers who are not just self-reporting that they're exclusively breastfeeding but also that they're talking about how they understand why it is the best source of nutrition uh, for their child. Um, and they feel kind of confident that, that they're able to breastfeed, they're able to feed their child adequately uh, from the breast. And that, that's actually extremely important as well, because there is a perception that you can't possibly have enough um, nutrients uh, and an insufficient volume, and therefore you should be introducing complementary feeding early um, and again that generally speaking is false hmm. interesting okay so so that seems like sort of a, a low-hanging fruit if you will yes absolutely so um i think it's it's one of those areas where uh, it's cheap uh, in fact it's obviously cheaper as you pointed out uh, than uh, having formula in your diet uh, it's something almost all women are capable of doing. Um, and therefore, I think it's it's relatively easy to deal with, um, at least in theory. I mean, in, in practice, um, we do find, um, again, if, if women are, are malnourished themselves, uh, they may not have particularly strong um, ah, respite. Right. So making sure one of the messages we try and deliver to, to mothers as well is that they should be um, increasing their own food intake significantly. Um, so you eating an extra meal a day, for example, mm. in order to boost their own health and making sure their own nutrition is balanced. Um, but also there are, other, uh, there are other fairly cheap and easy ways of getting people interested and excited in breastfeeding. So other innovations that we've introduced recently are um, we have uh, lactation consultants come in. Uh, they will teach uh, health workers how to do simple um, back massages, which sounds kind of banal. But what it does uh, is releases oxytocin and, and makes it easier to produce breast milk. So there's a kind of relaxation effect is positive. It makes women feel better. It makes, them, makes it easier for them to breastfeed. Um, last thing I'll mention on this as well is, is that um, when we first started to go into the villages, uh, we would 
talk to women typically in the mornings. We would visit the houses in the mornings and we would find um, whilst that was somewhat effective, what we were not getting is the fathers involved. Um, so we, we actually started to shift a lot of our programs to the afternoon. So there'll be a father around and we'll involve the father in the training and explain how important these various measures are to prevent stunting, including breastfeeding. Uh, and that seems to be more successful than just focusing on the mother uh, alone. Hmm. Well, um, and yeah, apart from the breast milk uh, for the children, especially the older, slightly older children, and then, and then for the mothers themselves, nutrition matters a lot. And then the, the diet that a lot of Indonesians are getting um, is pretty poor. I mean, uh, and, and even the ones that can afford healthy food are, are often not buying that. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. So I, I I don't want to say uh, um, po- poverty is clearly important, right? There are, there are a number of areas in Indonesia where people simply aren't earning enough money to buy themselves a nutritious diet. However, however as you say, uh, even people at the margin are often making the wrong types of food decisions. You know, if you swing a cat in a, the average Indonesian village, you'll, you'll find a shop that sells all sorts of junk food. Um, but it's much harder to find fresh vegetables or, or uh, fresh fruit uh, or even good local sources of protein. And so there's, there is an education process uh, that needs to happen as well with respect to people making food choices. That, that is for sure. And where, where do the uh, ubiquitous fried noodles or, or instant noodles stand uh, on the scale? Uh, yeah, we're not great fans of uh, instant noodles um, just because um, they obviously they're relatively carbohydrate heavy. Um, and so that the nutrition balance is skewed away from from proteins and, and vitamins that my understanding is, though, that some of the, the leading companies like Indofoods, do fortify the wheat that they're using in those noodles. So to some degree, uh, that has been addressed. Um, But, and I would say two things very, very important here, the uh, fortification standards, uh, at least to my understanding for the noodles, do not meet international recommended standards. the bio bioavailability of the iron within those noodles is insufficient, uh, and therefore, again, fall short uh, of what we we would require. Um, and also, it, there there are so many other aspects of having a balanced diet with fresh fruit and vegetables and basic protein sources like eggs, which provide nutrition that that noodles, for example, can't provide. So. Uh, whilst there are, whilst noodles are not necessarily the worst thing you can eat, uh, mm. they are still fairly long way down the list. Yeah, and they're just uh, yeah, literally ubiquitous all over Indonesia. Uh, yes. And diarrhea is something that uh, factors into the equation uh, significantly too, I think, um, especially for the, the very young uh, children. Is that right? Yeah, so it is both a cause and a consequence of stunting. So 
obviously if you if you get diarrhea through let's say drinking untreated water or having formula which has been mixed with untreated formula then you get diarrhea and therefore you're not absorbing any nutrients that you have um as i said though there's also a kind of reverse causation where um if you get persistent bouts of, of diarrhea there can be changes to your um your colon essentially um which will persistently reduce your ability to absorb nutrients so mm-hmm. even after you've recovered from that diarrhea you can have recurrent problems um because your your gut um has been altered um I'm, I'm not a medical doctor so it's worth um <laughs> confirming this but um you your once you've compromised your colon or your gut you've introduced um chronic infections or perforations and um, then you will get persistent problems with nutrition absorption so diarrhea is ex- exceptionally dangerous from that perspective it it also kills i mean mm-hmm. un- unfortunately you know every so often i will hear from our guys in the field you know that that they've met a mother who whose child died very very quickly um mm-hmm. you know within 48 hours from something that looked like a fairly benign about diarrhea it can have exceptionally serious consequences yeah so tragic really pretty unnecessary and i think the prevalence is quite high in indonesia is that right yeah it's extremely high i, I don't have figures at my fingertips but um it always sticks with me what one of the health workers said to me um during one of my visits to the field she she said look diarrhea is so common here that people don't even consider it an illness. Ah, right. Hmm. So what what what's involved in combating diarrhea then? Um clean water is a is a is a tough thing. Is it cooking methods or is it knowledge or medicine or a little bit of everything? Yes, clean water is is exceptionally important. Uh access to toilets are exceptionally important. Um what we try and do to kind of get people um access to that is through an indirect effect by reinforcing people's knowledge about the dangers of dirty water um so that should have the effect given indonesia is a democracy it ends up putting pressure on the village leaders uh, to improve access to these sort of basic services like clean water and as you as i'm sure you know village funds in indonesia are actually quite large um the problem is that they're often spent on the wrong sorts of things or at least mm. they're spent on the things that men would choose to spend them on like physical infrastructure and uh stuff like that yeah uh, whereas um women's issues or child health issues uh, like water are relatively neglected so there is money available um at the village level in, in many cases uh, to improve access to clean water um but people need to be more readily uh, informed uh, i'm sorry if you can hear background yeah, noise. A, they're, they're practicing yeah. for national day but um oh. yeah so need people to need more, to be more aware more informed people need to be more uh, informed and they need to put pressure on 
uh, their local elected officials to do something about it. Um, another thing that we've done is um, because most volunteer health workers naturally are, are, are women, um, we are trying to equip them not just with the knowledge and confidence uh, to reduce stunting, but also trying to encourage them to take a more active uh, role in village affairs as well, which again is a, a kind of an, a, an indirect way of affecting change. Hmm. Um, there are a bunch of other things you can do that are relatively easy. As we talked about breastfeeding, extremely important as a kind of shortcut around lack of access to uh, clean water. Hand washing with soap, uh, mm. hugely neglected uh, mm. in Indonesia in the sense p- uh, people often lack the knowledge of, of when to wash one's hands at what time and certainly the frequency of hand washing is exceptionally poor in general. So often we will have classes, very basic ones on hand washing with soap we have v- video-based stuff on YouTube about hand washing with soap. Um, and in the past, um, companies like Dettol have been kind enough to have helped us dis- distribute soap um, uh, within the villages we operate in as well. So that obviously that, that's, um, that's important and there's uh, elicited positive change as well. Hmm. And... You were talking about the effects of stunting over the long term. Can you give us a kind of a overview of what stunting actually means in, in practice uh, for Indonesians? Yeah, so um, uh, at risk of repetition, I suppose the major thing would be uh, being extremely prone to disease. And one thing maybe I didn't mention is that uh, if you're pr- if you're more prone to disease, there was a study done in Indonesia showing that um, stunted kids miss more than six months of schooling um, on wow. average. Oh, this is over the full term of, of yeah. their schooling life, but that's still very significant at, yeah. at that age of development. Um, we find this is from international research, not just confined to Indonesia, that. Uh, stunted kids are surrendering anything between six to eleven IQ points um, from uh, studies. Uh, it seems intuitively that it's worse than that. Um, mm. So that again is another very significant impact. All right. Um, so, so this is not just physical. This is not just physical stature that's being affected, but also you know, mental acumen. No, no, exactly. You're ex- exactly right. And and uh, actually, if you don't mind. I'll give people, I'll give you an illustration of this by putting you on the spot and asking you a question. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you want to test my mental acumen, it's probably going to fail. <laughs> um, so do you, do you have any idea how much your brain weighs? Mm, you mean my brain or you mean an average? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously your brain is larger than average. But the, uh, I was thinking smaller. Um, uh, 15 pounds? Okay, that's, that's aggressive. Uh, yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so the, the true answer, so you, your, your brain weighs about three pounds. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so a fully grown uh, adult male is about three pounds. So the, that's the difficult bit. Um, maybe the even more difficult bit is then to ask you, 
do you have any idea how much your brain would have weighed when you were two years old? So if it weighs mm. about three pounds today, what would it have weighed when you were a, a gorgeous two-year-old child? Actually, I'm going to guess uh, not as small as you would have thought. I mean, in other words, uh, still pretty big. Yeah. So the, the answer is it's about 2.3, 2.4 pounds. Okay. So, so yeah, as a percentage of the person's body, it's far higher for an infant than it is for an adult. Yes, vastly so. So the brain, the brain weighs almost 80% of that of an adult brain by the age of two years old. So that, that just gives you an illustration of how much physical growth there mm. is in, in the brain that occurs at a very, very early age. Mm. And of course, that's the time where at least you have exponentially higher neural connections being made as well. Mm. So that first thousand days, again, or the, or the first couple of years, uh, the, the first couple of years of your life are just critical, both of physical size and also the composition of the brain. So it, that's why it has such a or appears to have such a significant impact on IQ. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about institutions then. So uh, yeah, I want to get to BKKBN, uh, but uh, first the the one thousand days fund. How did that come about in, in the beginning? Um. Yeah. So uh, a bit of boring personal history here. So I've I've um I've always been kind of passively giving money away to what I consider the most effective charities in the world. So um, if you go to like the GiveWell website, for example, you'll find extremely efficient, well-run charities like the Against Malaria Foundation, which distribute um, mosquito nets in sub-Saharan Africa chiefly. Um, now, because I was living in Asia, I wanted to find something that was similarly effective um, and similarly neglect or, or and a cause that was similarly neglected. So stunting is clearly a huge problem, as we said, affecting about a third of the kids. And um, at that time, this was to 2017, it was hugely ne neglected as well. There was very little focus being paid to it. And it seemed like there were relatively cheap and easy ways of preventing it. And so it gave me, and this sounds selfish, but it gave me an opportunity to give money to something which was both like had a horrific human cost, but it was also something I could kind of get my hands dirty with and involve myself in um, because of my proximity to Indonesia. I'm based in Singapore, but often travel to Indonesia uh, on business. Um, so yeah, it was just, it struck me as the most serious problem in Indonesia today um, and the most urgent problem to deal with. And sorry, just one final thing as well. I, I'd been doing um, a bunch of volunteer work in Jakarta with a good friend of mine, Zach Peterson, who you may have come across. Yeah. Um, it, we did some teaching together. We did some volunteering at the hospital together. And through that experience, I could tell that this guy was somebody with 
unique energy, a unique ability to get things done. So it was like a perfect confluence of the right cause area with the right guy uh, executing in that cause area. So Zach and I ended up kind of forming a partnership and, and we're the co-founders of the Thousand Day Fund. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the things that interests me about stunting is that it's kind of a conceptually a nifty way to encapsulate both uh, a whole lot of maladies uh, out there and also uh, a lot of uh, negative development consequences all kind of wrapped up in, in one kind of approachable avenue um, that, that people can relate to, which is uh, the development of a child. Um, is that is that is that a fair way of kind of uh, encapsulating stunting? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a brilliant way of putting it. Actually, yeah. So you you if you're tackling stunting properly, you're tackling uh, poverty poverty related issues, um, access to basic health services. Um, it, there are women's rights issues involved as well, which is exceptionally important. Um, so these are all what makes it exceptionally important. I think it's also kind of, it can be the Achilles heel though of of stunting Mm. prevention because it gets complicated uh, and people prefer simple cause areas. Um, Mm. You know, it's uh, classically, as you know, if you, if somebody puts up on um, um, give Asia or one of these sites, um, suggesting that one gives money to to an individual you know has a terrible problem or responding to disaster relief these sorts of things are much simpler um, they're much more emotionally engaging in a very very short period of time so they tend to attract more attention than much more systemic and arguably more important problems like thousand days hmm. Yeah, it's a much more fundamental and broad, long-term campaign. Yes, yes. And of course, it takes a long time to see the final result as well. Um, because it's, you know, you're, you're looking at the, not the life cycle, but you're looking at at least a thousand day cycle. So you are talking about two and a half, three years before you can say that you have defeated stunting in a particular child. And that, again, because you're, you're delaying the reward to, to the donor or, or maybe even the public official, and that makes it much, much harder to, to sell. And unfortunately, uh, you know, raising money for, for causes is partly um, a, a salesmanship issue. Mm. Okay. Um, and clearly, something is, is – the, is the domain of donor institutions and uh, national governments. How does Thousand Days fit into? There, there's also a role for uh, charitable foundations too. So I think um, the the government is ultimately going to be the most important um, provider of anti-stunting services, uh, and and in fact, as I said before, it is, and the, the Indonesian government is at, is doing a vastly improved job over the last few years. Um, Yes, though, we do need private donors uh, and NGOs. A lot of the work on the ground or a lot of the the best work on the ground is being done by NGOs. Um, NGOs 
uh, you're much more likely to have um, highly motivated people. Um, you're much more likely to have uh, innovative solutions being introduced and people who are willing uh, to take risks from the donor perspective as well. Obviously, I don't mean risks with children's health. I mean, mm -hmm. donors taking risks on um, potentially high payoff solutions, but that, that could fail. Whereas the, the government's not really in a position to do that. Uh, it's much better for the government um, to use uh, tried and tested methods and to introduce kind of structural change once it knows what the, the best solutions are. And um, so you do tend to find a lot of innovation taking place at the NGO level. Okay. Um, so the Thousand Day f uh, Fund uh, itself, uh, how does that fit in exactly? Oh, yes. I'm so sorry. So we, so we think of ourselves as, as um, aggressive innovators within um, a, quite a, a strong evidence base, right? So what we're trying to do is, in the short run, we want to save as many kids as possible from stunting. Um, but we also have a, a, an eye on the kind of long-term prize, which is um, proof of concept that, that our approaches are working and therefore something that could be adopted um, on either a regional government or a national government scale. Um, so we've actually started to spend a lot more money on the monitoring, evaluation, data collection process. So we've just hired a, a new data manager, monitor, monitoring, evaluation manager, uh, and have earmarked a significant portion of our funds towards that. Mm. Um, so... Um, yeah, and, and so far, um, it's paying off. We, we do have a reasonable body of evidence to support what we're doing. So if you'll just indulge me, there are um, maybe three strains of evidence that I would cite. Um, first of all, it kind of all started off uh, using um, actually a Gates-funded study from Zambia, which looked at the use of um, height charts within the home, so home-based growth monitoring and found quite a significant reduction in stunting as a consequence of uh, home-based growth monitoring, which is one, oh, of the key, yeah. it's one of the key tools that we use. Um, then we had um, the World Bank um, in, uh, did a study over six months of our approaches within just three villages uh, within uh, Entete, um, and we found very dramatic improvements um, in knowledge and confidence about stunting, very significant increases uh, in breastfeeding rates as well. So that's this kind of second level of evidence. Um, third le level of evidence is um, local stunting data. Um, the under five stunting rate in the villages in which Thousand Days is operated, this is a Thousand Days fund, um, we've seen a 7% drop uh, in stunting rates um, over the last couple of years. Um, and that is versus no change in under five stunting in similar villages within West Mangarai where we were not operating. So whilst I talk a lot about, you know, the importance of innovation, 
and trying out new things. We do think that the evidence base for the stuff we're doing is reasonably strong as well. Yeah. Okay. So anti-stunting efforts uh, on, on the whole overall are uh, reaching how much of the country? Wow. I really wish I knew. I mean, uh, I'm sure my partner Zach knows, but um, all I would say is in uh, at this current time, my understanding is that almost 60% of Posyandu are closed. Um, and that is that's the tip of the spear, if you like, in the anti-stunting effort. So a, a lot of existing anti-stunting efforts are uh, suspended. Um, and that kind of brings us back to your question about the, the impact of COVID. Um, but my understanding is the government's reach has improved beyond that. But what I would say finally on this is, generally speaking, the places we operate in, which are the poorest parts of Indonesia, so um, uh, Entete, Entebbe, places like that, when we enter a village, it doesn't appear that there are any significant anti-stunting services being met or being delivered in these very, very poor and remote villages. So while I can't, I, I can't make a general statement about the country as a whole, I can certainly tell you that, that remote villages still seem to be extremely neglected. Okay. And uh, 1,000 Days has a affiliation or a uh, partnership now with uh, BKKBN, the National Family Planning and Population Agency. Is that right? Uh, yes. Um, so my understanding is that the head of the Family Planning Board um, has visited I think two or three now of the sites where Thousand Days operates. Uh, and he was present at the opening of one of our stunting centers of excellence. Um, now, this was all to have, with a view to the possibility that uh, the Family Planning Board would distribute as many as uh, two million of our height charts uh, in East Nusa Tenggara uh, within the next couple of years. And um, so there's there's a lot of steps that have to be taken before that happens. So I think the initial step is that we will be running a pilot project uh, in three areas with the family planning board uh, involving the distribution of around 20,000 height charts. Um, if that's successful um, and it's, um, it uh, comes within their budget, then we would launch uh, 2 million charts uh, over that coming 18 months, possibly a longer period again, depending on a kind of an iterative process of how well it's working out. Okay. Well, that's pretty interesting because uh, Big Akabayan is a formidable bureaucracy. So you, you're tapping into a, um, resources that are nationwide in scope and you know, with potential to really make an impact because it, that's an agency that has a history of making impacts uh, you know, demonstrably in its, its past work in, in family planning programs. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. And, and the, um, I think his name is Pat Hasto, uh, who visited the projects with Zach. Zach has a lot of very positive things to say about him. Um, and as you say, they have an existing, uh, not just an existing bureaucracy, but also 
an existing network of hundreds of thousands of additional health workers, health volunteers that we would we would hope to tap into. Um, we would love to use these guys uh, to distribute the high charts that we have, the smart charts as we call them now, um, and also introduce training packages for them. I, I don't know the status of how well these guys are trained because we've had contact with um, volunteer health workers that don't fall under the family planning ministry. But our experience of health workers outside of the family planning ministry is that many of them are untrained and have benefited significantly from from our training programs, obviously, albeit starting from quite a low base. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a huge opportunity, hopefully um, a hugely mutually beneficial opportunity. And most importantly, hopefully we can reach as many kids as possible through these guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an, it's an area where the Widodo administration, as you mentioned earlier on, uh, has uh, shown a lot of attention. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, with the impetus from the top, then the, that that's uh, in and of itself is promising. Um, it's just a matter of uh, making it happen on the ground in uh, local levels, and that depends on local support and engagement, I guess. Yeah, um, and, and so I think you're right that um, the president has, I think, very intelligently switched from kind of a focus on hard infrastructure to soft infrastructure, like uh, human capital, basically. So nutrition, education, these sorts of things have had a much, much uh, greater emphasis under his administration, especially his second administration, than any past presidency. And that's, that's a major change. Um, then the challenge is, as you allude to, how do we make sure that local and provincial governments are as motivated as the central government? Our experience with this is actually generally very, very good. That it's oftentimes more a question of not understanding the issue and not knowing exactly what to do about the issue is that's the problem. Once people in local regional governments become aware of the issue, they become very passionate about it because they see what a colossal impact it has, what a huge human impact it has. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, there's a lot to be done in this respect, but we're making decent progress. Okay, well, Simon Flint from A Thousand Days Foundation, thank you for talking to us about stunting or it's something we're going to look at and uh, follow up on and keep a close eye on this. I hope it's something that uh, was making, you know, continues to un- unfold in a, in a positive direction despite the pandemic having probably delivered a setback. But um, anyway, uh, thanks for the work that you do, Simon, and thanks for joining us today. Um, my absolute pleasure. And thanks very much for drawing attention to stunting as well, Kevin. Awesome, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks, Simon. Have a great afternoon. See you. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. And that's Reformacy Dispatch for another week. Thanks to Simon Flint of the Thousand Days Fund. Our producer is Stephen Handoko. Editing by Aditya Akbar. Music by the Blue Dot Sessions. Go to reformasi.info for your free trial of Reformasi Weekly. If you're listening to us through a podcast app, please subscribe and rate us. It helps. As always, you can reach us at hello at onthelevel.id. This podcast is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now. Bye for now.